Hosea chapter 9, we pick up tonight in verse 9. Last time we looked at the first half of this chapter, we've, we've been slogging through this long section of pronouncements of judgment from God and His explanation of why judgment is coming on the nation. And I, I promise you, we're not too far away from where we see some light at the end of the tunnel. That'll be in chapter 11, and that's not too far away. And as we go through this Minor Prophets, this is the, the longest sort of unbroken section of God's explaining why he is upset with his people, almost, <laughs> in Amos. It gets a little rough, all right, for a while. But most of the, uh, most of the books are much shorter, so we, we get to the good news quicker in most of the books. Uh, the only other book in the Minor Prophets that is as long as Hosea is Zechariah, and I promise Zechariah is fascinating from beginning to end, so we'll all enjoy that, I think. But this, uh, this book of Hosea, Hosea is, is pretty dark in the middle section, um, well, most of the book really is pretty difficult stuff dealing with why God is bringing judgment. And we saw last week in the first part of chapter 9 that he starts to lay out exactly what the judgment is going to be that he'll bring on this northern kingdom, uh, especially. And there's also some things there about the southern kingdom. In the last part of chapter 9, uh, it's it's a pretty interesting section here. He He begins to explain his reasons for judgment geographically. And we have three particular places that are mentioned in this last, last half of chapter 9 uh, that are connected with particular historical incidents in Israel. And there are certain events that happened and conditions that obtained in those places that uh, to the casual Bible reader today would probably not be very familiar, but to the people of Israel I think they would have been very familiar and these names stood for something that would have been known to the hearers of Hosea's prophecy. And taken together, they, they do a lot to explain what, why God is so upset with the nation. And so we start here in verse 9. It says, They have deeply corrupted themselves as in the days of Gibeah. Therefore he will remember their iniquity. He will visit their sins. So he says they've corrupted themselves as in the day of Gibeah. Now, what does that mean? Well, there's a story in the Bible that concerns Gibeah, and it's all the way back in the book of Judges, uh, chapter 19, 20, 21. The tail, end of the, the tail end of the book of Judges is one of the strangest sections of Scripture in the entire Bible. Uh, and, and most of us are familiar with certain parts of the book of Judges. We all know the story of Gideon, the story of Samson, uh, and so on. Some people are even familiar with Deborah and Barak and uh, some of those stories like that. But the, the tail end of the book is, is very disturbing, actually, because it shows just how corrupt the people had gotten. And uh, there's the, the I'll, I'll just sort of summarize the gist of the story. There's this uh, man who is a Levite. He's got himself a concubine. His concubine runs off, <laughs> and he has to go track her down. He finds her, he's carrying her home, and uh, they end up where he's going to. They end up at her uh, father's house, and uh, he keeps asking them to stay the night, you know, and, and he persuades them for about four or five days to do that. And finally, he, he, every day when they get up, he'd want to have, you know, a little, uh, a little party, right, I guess you'd call it. And uh, he keeps them around for a while. Finally, this man takes off. On the fifth day, he decides it's time he's got to go home. And uh, 
but it's late when he starts, so he doesn't he doesn't get very far, and night's beginning to fall. He he comes by the city of the Jebusites, and that in itself is a sort of a sad commentary on the nation of Israel because the city of the Jebusites actually is Jerusalem at this time. And uh, they had conquered the city when they first entered the land. Somehow or other, they had lost it, apparently, and it didn't come back into the hands of Israel until David was king and conquered the city. But we'll see what happens next. It's a very terrible thing that happens. If they had held on to the city of the Jebusites, if they had held on to Jerusalem, maybe the rest of the story doesn't even happen. Because they keep going, and they're in the land of Benjamin. They're in Gibeah. There's this mountain there. The name Gibeah just means hill. And they come into town, and they're sort of out in the town square, and nobody invites them to spend the night, which was a serious violation of uh, custom and etiquette in that day. And finally, there's, there's one old man that invites him to come into his house and tells him not to lodge in the street. Well, we find out why it was so dangerous for them to lodge in the street. Because what we have next is essentially a repeat of the story of Sodom and Gomorrah. And it's a, it's a really disturbing thing. The, the men of the city, or some of the men of the city, it calls them sons of Belial, which means worthless, basically. They come pounding on the door demanding that this man bring out this stranger so they can know him, which is speaking of homosexuality. They want to force him that way. I mean, it's a, it's a terrible story. And uh, this man, they end up sending the concubine out, and they abuse her all night. They find her in the morning laying there with her hands on the threshold of the door trying to get back in. She's dead. Well, it doesn't speak very well for anybody involved, does it? <laughs> that, that these men that were out there did that. doesn't speak well for the men inside that they would just sacrifice this woman this way and not try to protect her. But... It's such a disturbing thing that the, the man who had had his concubine killed decides to call the whole nation to war. He cuts her body into 12 pieces, which seems like an extraordinary thing to do. But it was, it was a, a not unknown thing to have happen in that day because if you're calling somebody to war because they've killed a person, you would have to have some token that it had actually been done, right? You couldn't text him a photo like we can today <laughs> and so they would they sent this uh, the pieces of the body out to the 12 tribes of Israel they gathered together and fight a battle against Benjamin to the point that they nearly destroyed the tribe of Benjamin and they get down to where Benjamin has just about 600 people left and they, or, uh, they, uh, they figure out they repent and figure out that they've just about cut off one of the tribes that God had given and uh, they've got to figure out some way to perpetuate the tribe of Benjamin because they had all sworn an oath that none of them would give their daughters to them to be married. And they have to figure out a solution. So what they do is uh, they go back and try to sort out if there was anybody in Israel who didn't heed the call to come to war. And there was one little city called Jabesh Gilead that didn't send anybody. Well, they go down there and uh, just slaughter the whole town <laughs> except, except for the women that had never been married. They kill all the men and the married women, and, the, and the, the young women who hadn't been married were about 400 of them, and they drag them off to give them to Benjamin for their wives so they didn't have to give their own daughter. I mean, it's a, it's a crazy story, right? I mean, it's just, it's one of those things, it's one of those things that a lot of people have no ideas even in the Bible, and, and it's just very strange. Well, that wasn't quite enough. They, 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 they were a few hundred short. 
So what they did then is um, the, they had sworn that they wouldn't give their daughters, so what they did is they took them down there, their daughters down there to dance and basically told the people of Benjamin, we're not going to give them to you, but if they're out there dancing and you see one, just grab her and marry her. And that was how they perpetuated the tribe of Benjamin. Well, it is, you, you understand now why God would say there in Hosea that their wickedness was as in Gibeah. Uh, because uh, it says there, they, uh, they have deeply corrupted themselves as in the days of Gibeah. And you see how desperately wicked the nation has gotten at this time. It's almost unimaginable that things like this are happening among the people of God. But it is what happened. And so that's the first thing he compares them to, is this thing that happens in the days of Gibeah. Verse 10, Hosea 9, verse 10, he says, I found Israel like grapes in the wilderness. I saw your fathers as the first ripe in the fig tree at her first time. But they went to Baal Peor and separated themselves unto that shame, and their abominations were according as they loved. So he's talking there about how he first takes Israel out of Egypt. They're out there in the wilderness. And she's a sort of a wild grapevine, right? Something that nobody else had seen a lot of value in. But he saw the value in her, and he claims her. He takes her uh, in under a covenant relationship, but he says that they went to Baal Peor, and that's the second place we need to talk about. Baal Peor is a significant place. This is all tied up with that talking donkey, okay? <laughs> right. Sometimes you have to give people a little nail to hang their memory on, and everybody remembers the talking donkey. But uh, the talking donkey, of course, belonged to a man named Balaam, who was a prophet of some sort. He's one of those mysterious characters in the Scripture who doesn't seem to be very godly, but God did talk to him, apparently. And uh, as Israel passed through, or was passing by the land of Moab, and Moab has this whole historical rivalry with Israel. Moab was one of those children of Lot that was born through less than auspicious circumstances. And uh, Moab has always been a thorn in the side of Israel in those days. And so the king of Moab wants to curse Israel. And he, he calls this prophet Balaam to curse Israel. This is all back in the book of Numbers. Uh, in, uh, yeah, well, it starts back in about uh, 22 and uh, 21 or 22 there. Uh, 22, 23, 24, 25 is where the whole story is given. And uh, so he calls Balaam to curse the people of Israel. And uh, in, in the midst of all this, you have this story where, where the prince has come to get Balaam to come down there where the king was. And, and that's when he goes out riding the donkey, of course, and the angel of the Lord appears to him, and the donkey starts to talk after a while. Uh, Balaam is an interesting man. He didn't seem to be very surprised that a donkey would talk. So you, can, you wonder what kind of spirits he's been messing around with, right? But he won't curse Israel. Because he has enough fear of God to know that if God has blessed these people, he, he can't curse them. And Balak tries everything he can do to get him to curse him. He took him up on this, there's a sort of hill there where you could look out over Israel. And uh, he took him up there to look over the host and, and they, uh, he wouldn't curse him. So he tells him, uh, come around the mountain a little further. He took him around to a place where he couldn't see all of them, where he could just see a few of them. He said, can you curse them now? You know, because, because it doesn't seem there are that many. Well, you see the spiritual level of this man. 
He doesn't understand that it doesn't have anything to do with the numbers of Israel. It has to do with the fact that God has his hand on the nation. And uh, so in the end, Balaam will not curse the people. But it turned out that he didn't need to. Because when you get down to chapter 25, it said, And Israel abode in Shittim, and the people began to commit whoredom with the daughters of Moab. And they called the people unto the sacrifices of their gods, and the people did eat and bowed down to their gods. And Israel joined himself unto Baal Peor, and the anger of the Lord was kindled against Moses. And uh, God, long story short, God ended up sending a plague that killed uh, thousands of the people of Israel. And the reason this happened, you don't actually find this out till chapter 31, that Balaam had something to do with this. Because in chapter 31, verse 15 and 16, said, And Moses said unto them, Have ye saved all the women alive? Behold, these caused the children of Israel through the counsel of Balaam to commit trespass against the Lord in the matter of Peor, and there was a plague among the congregation of the Lord. So evidently what happened was Balaam being unable to curse the people, counseled Balak to just send those Moabitish women down there and get the people of Israel worshiping the false gods through that temptation. And you see how devious this man is, right? Because he is, uh, he is unable to curse them, but he, he knows how to get God to punish them. He knows that God will protect them, and the only avenue he's got to get them in trouble is to get God angry with them. And so he's the one who counsels the people to do that. Now, down there in Baal Peor is where they begin, not, not where they begin, they followed after false gods before, but because of this temptation of getting mixed up with uh, women from other nations, God, had remember, had, had uh, commanded them that they were not to get intermingled with other nations because this very reason, because that would cause them to get mixed up in idol worship. And uh, this, at this place called Baal Peor, that's exactly what they've done. They followed after women from other nations, and it's gotten them mixed up in idol worship. Well, again, this is precisely the thing that's happening again in Hosea's day. History repeats itself. They've made a habit in the northern kingdom of getting themselves involved with other nations. They never really were satisfied to be just God's people, and they're, they're in communication with Syria and Assyria and other nations like that, that uh, they've drawn in gods from other nations. They've drawn in women from other nations, intermarried, intermingled. And uh, part of the sort of poetic justice about how God eventually punishes the nation is that he causes them to be intermingled with other nations in a scale they never even dreamed possible. He sort of says, okay, you want it here, you go ahead and have it. And sometimes that's the way judgment works, you know. Uh, sometimes we get judged by God allowing us to have exactly what we asked for. Well, that's what they got, and that's what he, he says they've done. Uh, they went to Baal Peor and separated themselves under that shame, and their abominations were according as they loved. Uh, verse 11, Hosea chapter 9, verse 11. As for Ephraim, their glory shall fly away like a bird. Now, I want you to catch that uh, reference to a bird here. We already saw uh, a while back that he called them a silly dove, right? Because they were 
too foolish to understand the snare that had been set for them. And I just want to point that out as we go through because it'll come back to us again later on. So just kind of file that away in your brain. From the birth, from the womb, and from the conception. They have this problem that is deep-seated all the way into the heart of their very being. By the way, this is a sort of an important verse with regard to the abortion debate we have right now because there's I mentioned a long while ago when we were going through our lessons on doctrine about different theories about where the soul comes from. But he seems to recognize this nation and the people in this nation as personal entities before God, not just from birth, but from the womb and even from the conception. That is that they exist as... Um, people with whom God may deal, even from that moment of conception. It says, Though they bring up their children, yet will I bereave them, that there shall not be a man left. Yea, woe also to them when I depart from them. Uh, part of what happened with the judgment here with Assyria, and this also happens to some extent later on with the Babylonian judgment, is the people that they dragged away were the ones that they thought they could make use of in other places. Right with the Babylonian captivity, there's three phases in it. And they start out with taking the the, the sort of the elite, and they wait, work their way down until they take the lesser ones. So, he's one of the things that, that the Assyrians do is they take away the strong men and carry them into other countries, leave the women and children there. And uh, it says, uh, verse thirteen, Ephraim, as I saw Tyrus, is planted in a pleasant place, but Ephraim shall bring forth his children to the murderer. Give them, O Lord, what will thou give? Give them a miscarrying womb and dry breasts. The thought of the idea here, and, and this this is a sort of a terrifying thing to think about, but the judgment is so severe that these people would wish or hope for or would be better off if their children died as babies or if they were never even born because of the way the Assyrians will treat them. The Assyrians at that time were the cruelest nation, I guess, that the world had ever seen. Uh, there are some people who believe that the Assyrians invented crucifixion. And the Romans, of course, later perfected it, but they think it may have been an Assyrian idea originally. They did terribly wicked things to people. Have you ever seen in the old westerns about how they show uh, how they would bury people up to their neck and just leave them there out in the hot sun? Well, the Assyrians actually did that. It wasn't just a fictional thing that was in the old westerns. The Assyrians did it to people. They were horrifying. Later on, we'll come to the book of Jonah, and sometimes we're surprised that Jonah seemed to hate the Assyrians, the Ninevites, so badly. But when you understand what those people were doing to Israel, you begin to understand. And he says, this is what it's going to be like in Israel when they come. He said, they started out as a pleasant place. They're like Tyrus. Tyrus, that's Tyre over on the Mediterranean coast, which is a very wealthy trading city and very well situated with uh, the for position for trade there on the Mediterranean. And uh, he says Ephraim was planted just like that, but it's not going to be a pleasant place anymore. Verse 15 says, All their wickedness is in Gilgal. And that's the third place we need to talk about, Gilgal. For there I hated them for the wickedness of their doings. I will drive them out of mine house. I will love them no more. All their princes are revolters. Now, this place, Gilgal, is a very important place. It was actually the point of entry into the Promised Land. When they first came over, 
when remember when Joshua leads the people, God parts the Jordan River or, or backs up the Jordan River, makes it sort of congeal up there, up the river, and they come across. They come across to Gilgal. It's right on the the uh, the, the west side there of the Jordan River, and uh, that was where, if you remember the story, when they get across, Joshua set up a memorial of twelve stones to commemorate their crossing, so that all their children could come back and remember what was there. It was their camp for a while at the beginning, and it was from there that they come out toward Jericho and Ai and places like that. You may remember the story. They, they got involved with an alliance that they weren't supposed to with the Gibeonites. Remember the Gibeonites? They were the ones God had told them to kill all the people in the land. The Gibeonites come out with their uh, moldy bread and their old clothes and everything and pretend like they're in a long journey and they're not really from the land. And they made an alliance with them. And that got them in trouble. But having made an alliance or a pledge to them, God expected them to keep their pledge. And the Gibeonites got attacked, and they came out from Gilgal to help the Gibeonites. That was the famous battle where the sun and the moon stood still, if you remember that one. And uh, so they're sort of launching their, Joshua's sort of launching the, the beginning operations of taking the promised land from this place called Gilgal. Now, it's such an important place in the history of the nation that when they decide they want a king, they go to Gilgal to make Saul the king. He's the first king. Remember, Samuel goes to anoint him, and he anoints him a while before the people actually uh, coronate him, so to speak. But in 1 Samuel chapter 11 and verse 15, it says, When all the people went to Gilgal, and there they made Saul king before the Lord in Gilgal, and there they sacrificed sacrifices of peace offerings before the Lord. And there Saul and all the men of Israel rejoiced greatly. So this place, Gilgal, was, was regarded as a sort of place of origin for the nation of Israel in the land. And when they crown a king, they crown him at Gilgal. But remember, God was not altogether pleased with the fact that they had decided they wanted the king. Back there in chapter 8 of 1 Samuel, when Samuel has, or feels like he has been rejected uh, because he was the last judge of the nation, verse 7, 1 Samuel chapter 8, And the Lord said unto Samuel, Hearken unto the voice of the people in all that they say unto thee, for they have not rejected thee, but they have rejected me, that I should not reign over them. Now, that's an interesting thing there, because God allows them to have a king, he permits them to have kings after Saul. They have a lot of kings. God blesses the kings, or blesses some of the kings, but God never forgot that they had rejected him. And so there's a problem at Gilgal, right? That's where the people decided they wanted the king instead of being directly obedient to God. There's a further problem at Gilgal. Remember what it was, or the first thing, actually, that Saul did that cost him the kingdom? He made a sacrifice, which was not his job. The priest was supposed to make the sacrifice. This is in 1 Samuel chapter 13. And uh, Saul had gone to Gilgal. He was supposed to wait there for Samuel. He was supposed to wait for him seven days. And he waits for Samuel seven days, and he gets impatient, and uh, he won't wait anymore. He begins to make his sacrifice, uh, verse 8 of chapter 13 says, And he tarried seven days according to the set time that Samuel had appointed, 
But Samuel came not to Gilgal, and the people were scattered from him. And Saul said, Bring hither a burnt offering to me, and peace offerings. And he offered the burnt offering. And it came to pass that as soon as he had made an end of offering the burnt offering, behold, Samuel came. And Saul went out to meet him that he might salute him. He thought he'd waited long enough. Saul actually came there on the seventh day. It's just, or Samuel came on the seventh day. Saul just got impatient. He wouldn't wait quite long enough. And because he had done that, uh, down in verse 13, it says, Samuel said to Saul, Thou hast done foolishly. Thou hast not kept the commandment of the Lord thy God, which he commanded thee. For now would the Lord have established thy kingdom upon Israel forever, but now thy kingdom shall not continue. So he takes the kingdom away from him. And we take that all together and bring us bring it back to Hosea chapter 9. It says, All their wickedness is in Gilgal, for there I hated them. For the wickedness of their doings will I drive them out of mine house, and I will love them no more. All their princes are revolters. See, that's the connection in that verse. All their princes are revolters. If they had been obedient to God, they wouldn't have had any princes. That wouldn't have been a problem. They wanted such a sad statement. Yeah, he 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 hated them there, and that's think about what that means. Back there in First Samuel, the Lord doesn't really go into that in a lot of depth about how much that actually hurt him. But he does here, and and think about what happens. the The kings of Judah. God actually recognized his kings. But that principle that started back there at Gilgal when they decided that they could call themselves their own kings, think about that, how, what that leads to in the northern kingdom. Because the northern kingdom, after they split, remember, God didn't have anything to do with any of those kings, except he, he did have Jehu anointed for a special thing there. But they were always rebels against God. But once they had it in their minds that they could call themselves a king or select who they wanted for a king, now they're not in obedience to God anymore. They're in obedience to a king. Well, the thing about being in obedience to a king instead of obedient to God is that if you don't like the king, you can go kill the king and get a new king. <laughs> you can't do that with God. And it had bred a rebellious spirit in the people to think that they could go their own direction anytime they wanted. This is demonstrated in the very action of the first king, Saul, isn't it? That he, the priest doesn't come to offer the sacrifice, so he takes it upon himself to... Do it the way he wanted to. Yeah. And, you know, how, how many people today, how many people today would find an objection to what Saul did? Because most of us would say, well, at least he was trying to worship God. But he wasn't doing it the way God said to. And that makes a difference. That matters. And so the whole thing was offensive to God. And uh, so he says he hates them. Now, that's an interesting expression because... We know that in the end, the theme of this book is how much he loves them. And it's been said very truly, I think, and very wisely that hate is not the opposite of love. (laughs) The opposite of love is indifference. But hate and love both come from a place of very deep and strong emotions. It's hard to hate somebody unless you once loved them, (laughs) right? Uh, you tend to become indifferent to them, really, at some point. But that's the thing. He loved them so very much. That's why it disturbed him so very deeply that they had done what they had done. And we'll see in chapter 11 how much he really does love them, even though he was uh, very angry with them here. 
It says in verse 16, Ephraim is smitten, their root is dried up, they shall bear no fruit. Yea, though they bring forth, yet will I slay even the beloved fruit of their womb. My God will cast them away because they did not hearken unto him, and they shall be wanderers among the nations. And that has been true down to this very day. The northern kingdom never has really been regathered and will not be until uh, God regathers them during the latter stages, I think, of the tribulation. (coughs) Brings them all back together, and finally Christ will bring them all back together when he comes to reign. But think about this. This has been over 2,700 years, and they've been wanderers among the nations ever since. There have been some of them who have returned to Israel, but... Still, the majority of Jewish people live outside the nation of Israel. They are wanderers among the nations. This prophecy has absolutely come true. And they've never been welcome. They've never been welcome in, in very few places. And as a matter of fact, I, I think, you know, sometimes I think we, uh, we get a little confused maybe about why God has allowed our nation to prosper so much. I think one of the greatest nations why the United States has prospered so much is because it's been one of the very few places on earth where the Jews have been welcomed and treated well. And yeah, if we quit doing that, we're in trouble. And that is happening around us now. 